Thank you, Denny. Very much. Thanks to Denny, we are having this wonderful event here. Um, thank you, Springer, <laughs> Nature, for also helping to organize this. And thanks to Springer, we'll have some good wine after this. <laughs> uh, and I must say, I'm very, very happy uh, to be back here uh, launching uh, another book. Uh, this is actually my ninth book now. And I'm sure some of you are going to get tired of reading my books, I'm sure, at some point in time. Uh, but this book has a rather unusual history. I mean, frankly, to be completely honest with you, this was a book that was not supposed to be born. <laughs> and it, it's literally, and I'm not even exaggerating, a completely accidental book. Because what happened was that Springer Nature signed a contract with the Center on China and Globalization uh, in uh, Beijing, and they, the first book they produced was a book called Consensus or Conflict, uh, and it has essays by lots of people, Nobel laureates, Edmund Phelps, Joseph Nye. It's really a very, very good collection of essays. And, of course, you know, they didn't expect this collection of essays to do well. To their absolute surprise, uh, it got 100,000 downloads. And they said, wow. Gosh, books of essays work well. Why don't we do another one? So I got a call out of the blue by Wang Huiyao, who runs the Center of China Globalization. Hey, Kishore, this book did very well. It got 100,000 downloads. Why don't we publish your essays? <laughs> Whatever essays you haven't published, send to us. So my very hardworking research assistants, uh, Bertrand and uh, Kesawa, found enough essays, put it together. I wrote an introduction and send it off and thinking, okay, well, this book, you know, free book, open access book, nobody's going to read it, right? Why would anyone want to read a free book? And so, and, and this is some way of confirmed to me just two weeks ago because I happened to, I was in Davos two weeks ago, by the way, where I happily got COVID. <laughs> and uh, and at the, at, the, at the lunch, at one lunch, a very tall German gentleman came up to me. He's the chairman of Springer Nature, Stefan introduced himself, said, I'm Stefan, I'm the uh, chairman of Springer, and I wanted to thank you for publishing this book of essays. So I said, yeah, and I said, normally, how many downloads do you get if you publish a book of essays? He looked at me, he says, normally 20,000. So I said, do you know how many downloads we've had so far? The chairman of Springer didn't know. <laughs> and he said, what's an amount? I said, at that time, this was two weeks ago, I said the amount is 1.75 million in five months. It's completely astounding. <laughs> I can tell you I'm shell-shocked. And I told my RAs, if I had known there's going to be 1.75 million downloads, I would have spent more time on the book. <laughs> but, you know, it's amazing how these things happen. So... The lesson in life is that it's always worth trying something. If someone comes to you and says, why don't you do something, do it. Do X, and you never know. You can get 1.75 million, and I think you're predicting you might hit 2 million by the end of this summer. So the question, therefore, that I'm genuinely intrigued by, I mean, I'm, 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 this is a, how do you say, I'm really genuinely puzzled. How did this happen? <laughs> Why does such a book, like a book of essays, get 1.75 million downloads in, now 1.77, in 161 countries? What happened? And in my view, the only answer I can give, and this is quite sincere, it, it is a title. Because I think people all around the world are beginning to accept the reality that the 21st century will be the Asian century. But since so few people talk about it, so few people write about it, certainly the Western media will never tell you that this is going to be the Asian century. There are no guideposts. Nothing is available. So when a book comes along and says, hey, let me describe to you what the Asian century is going to be like, there's a tremendous demand for it uh, all over the world. So the big, and, and this at the same time, as you know, is going to be the big question of our century. Will the 21st century 
really be the Asian century. And I, I'm, I'm, for someone who travels a lot, I can tell you that in both in Europe and United States, there's still a lot of resistance to accepting the idea that the 21st century, the Asian century. So what I want to, what I want to do, my opening remarks before I, I must say, I want to thank really from the bottom of my heart, uh, Chan Heng Chi and Yun Fung Kong and Denny. They all have very, very busy schedules to spare your time for me. I really appreciate it. And I mean it quite sincerely. So, this question of whether or not we're going to have an Asian century is still hotly debated. So my contribution in the 10 minutes or so I have left is to explain why, on the one hand, I feel very optimistic, and then also, to be honest, share with you some doubts, some reasons for pessimism, and then offer a kind of solution which I hope that the Asian countries will take on board if we're going to succeed in achieving our Asian century. And the first thing, of course, the reason why I am basically optimistic is that there are sort of three fundamental forces driving the return of Asia. The first is, of course, the weight of history. And as we know, the weight of history tells us that for 1,800 out of the last 2,000 years, the two largest economies of the world were always those of China and India. So it's only in the last 200 years that Europe took off, North America took off. It's very clear from, from a historian's perspective, the last 200 years of Western domination of world history has been a major historical aberration. All aberrations come to a natural end. And so it's perfectly natural to see the return of China and India. There's a sense of inevitability about it. But of course, the question then arises, why didn't it happen 100 years ago? Why do you have to wait so long? And here, the, the second reason why I'm optimistic and I believe that the Asian century will happen is that there is, there is a somehow or other, again, for reasons we don't really know why, a very deep culture of learning in Asian societies. There is this hunger to learn, you know. And this hunger to learn means that the best students of the fruits of Western civilization are actually now found in Asia. Because the Asians tried to figure out why, how did we, how did we become so backward? Why did we fall behind? How do we advance? How do we catch up? And I, and I can tell you, by the way, that we have actually, certainly in the last 30, 40 years, seen all kinds of remarkable miracle stories. And I'm sure, I'm, I'm absolutely, I need to know, I've another book on it saying why Singapore is an exceptional miracle story. That's a, but Singapore is small, but still, it's a remarkable miracle story. But what China has done in the last 40 years in terms of lifting 800 to 900 million people out of absolute poverty and giving them something close to a middle-class existence is, is one of the most greatest, most remarkable feats in human history and the many reasons why China succeeded but one reason is that China learned the best, best practices from the West, especially in, in, in uh, science and technology, in terms of organization and so on and so forth. And that's how you've had this miracle. So in a sense, we should actually in Asia really thank the West for sharing its knowledge uh, with Asia. And of course, with our deep culture of learning, we've been able to absorb and implement and use it. Uh, to develop uh, our societies. And that is another reason why I'm very optimistic that the Asian century will happen. And the third reason why I, I'm optimistic is that there's another feature of Asians which is, again, not very much understood because it's, it's invisible, it's intangible. You can't, you can't touch it. And what is this thing you cannot touch? Uh, I call it the culture of pragmatism. And again, for reasons we don't really know why, there must be very deep historical cultural roots for this culture of pragmatism. But it's there, it's alive, it's well. And, and I would say the exhibit A of this culture of pragmatism, frankly, is Southeast Asia. Because most, most of us are actually not even aware that this region that Singapore is completely surrounded by, Southeast Asia, is by far the most diverse region on planet Earth. 
out of 680 million people, you have 250, 260 million Muslims, 150 million Christians, 150 million Buddhists, Mahayana Buddhists, Hinayana Buddhists, and you have Taoists, you have Confucianists, uh, and you have Hindus, and you have lots of communists too in Southeast Asia. <laughs> in fact, some of the most successful communist countries in Southeast Asia. So, uh, it's, it is, this region, frankly, historians will ask, how is it it hasn't gone to war? It is the Balkans of Asia. It should be at war today. But it has now enjoyed 40 years of peace. And I can tell you one thing. Eh? We would have all taken this peace for granted until Ukraine happened. Because Ukraine is a clear wake-up call. If you had asked me whether the next big war would happen close to Europe, I said, no, 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 no. The Europeans are so advanced. They're so sophisticated. You've had zero wars among major European states, yet zero prospect of war within any two EU states. And so I thought that would be the region that could prevent wars. But yes, you can see the big war didn't happen in Asia. The big war happened right at the doorstep of Europe. And you, you can, of course, you can have a long discussion of what triggered the war in Ukraine. But if you ask me to give a single factor explanation, I would say it's the absence of the culture of pragmatism in European cultures. Because all they had to do was reach a compromise with Russia. And that would have prevented that war. And that culture of compromise, which is part of pragmatism, is missing. And for whatever reason, we have it here. It's invisible. You can't see it. But it is the results you see are the lack of wars, the lack of fighting, and an ability to cooperate despite these tremendous differences. And I can tell you the differences among Southeast Asians are much deeper and much greater than the differences among Europeans, who still, at the end of the day, belong to a singular civilization, one religion, one culture, one Greco-Roman roots. We don't have that. We have a complete diversity. But somehow, maybe because of the diversity, we created this culture of pragmatism. We learned the art of live and let live, and that's why we are at peace. Now, having given you the reasons for optimism, let me also quickly say that it will be an absolute mistake for Asians to think that success in Asia is guaranteed. It's definitely not guaranteed, and there are serious dangers coming our way. And if you want to ask me where is the biggest danger of the next big war, you don't have to be a geopolitical genius to figure it out. The danger of the next big geopolitical war will be over Taiwan. Because there you have two forces meeting. It's literally you're caught within a rock and a hard place because China has made it absolutely clear. This is not 99%, not 99.9%. This is 100%. If Taiwan declares independence, China will declare war. 100% guarantee. And on the other side, and this of course is a long story, the United States has decided that China is the biggest geopolitical challenge to the United States. And the United States has more or less worked out, it's got 10 years to stop the United States. So I guarantee you in the next 10 years, the US-China geopolitical tensions will rise. 100% guarantee. And when the United States is looking for opportunities to trip up China, the one big opportunity is Taiwan. And so you can't possibly get a war there. So all of us who want to prevent wars in Asia, let's pay careful attention to these danger points. And Taiwan, by the way, is not the only danger point. No? There are other areas you could have trouble between China and Japan, uh, between North and South Korea, between uh, China and India, between India and Pakistan. There are, there are other flashpoints. I mean, we've got to pay attention to that. 
So therefore, that's the reason, frankly, why I decided that we should launch the Asian Peace Program uh, at NUS. Because if peace is so important to Asia, why aren't we doing something to preserve peace? Why not? So let's do something. So I hope that one of the results of this discussion will be a renewed commitment on the part of Asians to figure out ways and means of ensuring that despite the fact that we have geopolitical tensions in our region, we will keep the peace. Let's make that a commitment, and I think we can do it. But, and, but the question is how. And here, this is my final point about what I see as the big solution. The big solution at the end of the day, especially for Asians, is to strengthen as many multilateral institutions as possible especially regional multilateral institutions. And I say one, I want to make a very, very important point, going back to my point about pragmatism. Again, for whatever reason, we have developed a culture here of creating inclusive regional organizations. So in most of the things that we do in East Asia, if they originate from East Asia, inevitably they will include China because China, at the end of the day, is still the largest economic and political force in our region. Trying to set up a, a regional arrangement that excludes China is a recipe for trouble. Have the camel in the tent, bring China in, and work with China. And that's why all the ASEAN initiatives, all of them, always include China. And by the way, China, India, and everybody else. Inclusiveness is the answer. Whereas in Europe, I think one of the biggest mistakes that Europe made, uh, especially after 2014, was to expel Russia from the G8. Because you don't solve a problem by expelling somebody who is geographically your neighbor. It's a show. It's tokenism. It solves nothing. creates an additional problem. We don't do that. Right? We keep everybody in as much as possible. And that habit, that trait that we have developed is something that we must try to retain. And therefore, we must continue to work to create these sorts of strong regional multilateral institutions. And fortunately, they are thriving. Fortunately, ASEAN is doing well in terms of providing the venue for all these meetings. And the, if, if all this continues, then I think if we meet here 10 years from now, we will say yes the Asian century has truly begun. Thank you very much. Thank you, Kishore, for a wonderfully invigorating opening to our session. You talked about the big forces of history. You talked about how ASEAN, Southeast Asia, was blessed with this culture of pragmatism and how other places that have not been able to develop that have run into headwinds. But at the same time that you described this, you were not sanguine. You said that there were also dangers coming to us, and we need to, you have helped us identify a number of these and talked about solutions, building multilateral institutions. I would like now to open the discussion by inviting the two other panelists to give their thoughts on either what they've heard, what the book's about, about the grand challenges that they too see for us in this region as we move into the 21st century, whether it's Asian or otherwise. So to begin, Ambassador Chan, may I invite you to either from where you are or to use the podium to provide an opening statement. Um. Since there's no... Oh, there's, um, we've got, yes. I think they, they just have to turn it on. So if you start speaking... Well, can I sit down? Do you want me to stand up? No. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> the, um, well, the 21st, Asian 21st century is a collection 
of essays by Kishore, written over a period of time. And I have known Kishore for a very long time. Yeah, We are not spring chickens. <laughs> now, I know that Kishore has been constantly working on the theme on the rise of Asia, and by inference, also the future of the West as a result. And he spent his sabbatical in 1991 to 1992 in Harvard, where he thought long and hard about it. And he wrote, uh, you know, even before Can Asians Think, the West and the Rest, and, you know, he started hitting hard at the West. And this was very unusual because at that time, very few writers, analysts would dare to come up with actually saying the emperor has no clothes, you know, of the West. So he was quite an unusual voice at that time. He has developed and played with his ideas for some 30 years, and he has responded to the trends and developments in the region and in the world. And he's written his Can Asians Think, which I told him was very insulting as a title, but that's Kishore. And he's written about the decline of the West and of the United States, Europe. Has the West lost it? Has China won? And through this period, he has been unwavering in his belief and his writings reflect this. That is, it is the rise of Asia and to some extent, although he changes a little now and again, the decline of the West. Actually, Kishore, you're just a one-song man. <laughs> but it is a very powerful song. You have sung it very well. <laughs> I would like to comment a couple of the points you raised about, you know, what makes Asia great is the learning culture and the pragmatic culture. Very quick comments because I don't want just to rest there. I want to talk of the future of the Asian century because I have some very clear ideas about what I want to say. On the learning culture, I don't think it's only Asia that has the learning culture. You know, the learning culture is in the United States, uh, the Jewish community, everywhere in Europe, the writing, the learning culture. So I would, I know Asians like to believe this of themselves and Asian mothers say, tusu, 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 study, study, study. Because if you study, you can actually do better. Take the exams, not the imperial exams, but take some exams and doors will be open. But I would not um, discount that other cultures also have the learning culture. But Asia is hungry. Asians are hungry. And therefore, they are striving and parents are still pushing their kids. Culture of pragmatism. Not all of Asia has a pragmatic culture. Anthropologists will tell you that there are two kinds of culture in Asia. One is the materialistic culture, which the East Asians seem to have more, and that's why they develop faster. You know, they are very materialistic, not too deep into religion, and, um, you know, we adapt to modernity and development. Then there is a subliminal culture, which is, you know, they say Hinduism and Islam. It takes you into a different world, you know, it's not is spiritual, and that has different dimensions. So, you know, pragmatism, you know, again, not all of Asia. It depends on where you, what you look at. And the British are very pragmatic. I always thought Singapore's success was because we married Victorian pragmatism or pragmatism of the British and Chinese pragmatism. And then we put on this Victorian puritanism on top of it, and that makes Singapore. You know, uh, so these are my comments on the two points you raised. Now let me talk of the Asian century as you have, you know, I think you've been playing with this idea, the Asian century, and this is the Asian 21st century. You know, I'm a little superstitious. Every time we say the Asian century, Something happens, some big crisis happens. You know. <laughs> yeah, when we touted the Asian century, we had the Asian financial crisis immediately. <laughs> you talk of the Asian century, the global financial crisis, and it affects Singapore, Malaysia, a few other countries. 
So I don't know about the Asian century, you know. I also will say that I tend to think in 20 years, you know, in a sort of span of 20 years, and maybe maximum 25 years. Longer than that is hard. So to talk of century, well, I don't know. Because I can backcast 20 years, 20 years ago, what happened. Then you, from what, when you backcast, you can forecast or foretell. And that's what we do in an analysis. So thinking of 20 year terms, it does help, you know. But the Asian century, you know, let me put it this way. Today, when you think of the Asian century, I am reminded, and I want to remind you, of a wonderful speech that Taman Shamugaratnam, the senior minister, Taman Shamugaratnam, delivered very recently. And he described that we are in a period of the perfect long storm. It's a perfect long storm because until now, for we have been battling the pandemic, COVID pandemic. Whilst we are grappling with the pandemic and we haven't even recovered from it, we meet with the Ukraine invasion, invasion, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So it's the Ukraine war. So the Ukraine war, the pandemic, and then on top of that, you get slow growth, slower growth. Slower growth now because of pandemic and the Ukrainian crisis has become longer, slower growth. It will come with inflation, stagflation. Slow growth and inflation, but it is longer, slower growth and hyperinflation now. And on top of that, you have the climate change risks as well, which you have to factor in. And also, who knows, the next pandemic, we're dealing with one pandemic, you could have another pandemic, and you could have disease X, as everybody fears, and all the geopolitical risks that are emerging. So in that sense, we are facing a perfect long storm. So the Asian 21st century will be impacted by this perfect long storm. But globally, everybody will be affected by it. So what will the Latin 21st century be? What will the African 21st century be? What will the American 21st century be? What will the European 21st century be? And what will the Asian 21st century be? We will be all hit by the perfect long storm. So that's one breaker. But I would agree that if I look at all the regional prospects into the 21st century, in the next 20 years or so, I would put my money on Asia still, you know. And it's for many reasons, but, but I do see also that, whilst I say I put my money on Asia, I do worry about a couple of things. Uh, what do I worry about? I worry about two things. And one is security, the other is economics, because they make up the Asia century. On security, I think we face a period of unpeace. I call it unpeace. Unpeace with the possibility of war and conflict. This great power competition, the US-China relationship is in a terrible pace, it's not going to get any better, and it's deteriorating very fast. The question is, uh, how will it end? Nobody knows, you know. But the greatest concern, the hottest spot, white heat spot, is Taiwan. I agree with Kishore there, you know. We've just heard Secretary Lloyd Austin in Shangri-La. We've also heard General Wei Fenghe both gave speeches. And I thought Secretary Austin gave a very good speech for three quarters of the speech, you know. He talked about the regional architecture that's being built and how the, what the United States is doing to help secure a more stable Asia. The last quarter of the speech was a very direct criticism of China, coercive, aggressive, etc. I thought it was actually quite strong. The next day, General Wei Fenghe 
began his speech, again, we will cooperate, there's multilateralism, China believes in all this, and it was, in fact, quite, you know, a restrained speech until he came to talk about Taiwan. And then he hit very hard on Taiwan, that China will fight to the end if Taiwan declares independence. So I see, in fact, Taiwan being a difficult spot. It is a spot where U.S.-China, the rivalry, the tensions, the conflict will meet. And, uh, you know, the, what worries me is that the United States has accused China, and ASEAN has said this too, of doing salami slicing in the South China Sea. You know, little bit by bit, creeping aggression. I think the United States, and now increasingly bringing in the Europeans, are doing salami slicing with Taiwan. Bit by bit, you are pushing, you know, the boundaries of what was agreed to in the acceptance of the one China policy. The three communiques, Shanghai communiques, the three communiques, six assurances, and so on. So there's salami slicing both sides. But the South China Sea is not such a hot spot right now compared to Taiwan. And in Taiwan, it is a hot spot. And what worries me is that everybody says, I believe in a one-China policy. But in reality, what do they really believe in, you know, on the ground? And I'm not sure there is a coincidence of interpretation. So that is why... I worry about the unpeace here. Now, um, what has changed between President Trump's United States and its relationship to China, and what has changed between President Biden's uh, administration and its relationship with China? I would say that uh, President Biden has not changed very differently from President Trump in the approach to China. But he's done it more diplomatically, in a more disciplined way, and he has mobilized Europe to be on his side. So it is now China, the West versus China, China versus the West. This is how it is shaping up. And I think when you look at the Indo-Pacific strategies of all the European countries as they come up with Indo-Pacific strategies, I think most of them talk of taking a firm position on China. Germany is inclusive in its engagement in the Indo-Pacific strategy, and I think that is what we like. My hope is that President, uh, not President, Secretary Blinken, in his latest speech, which represents the American policy on China, talks of both co- uh, sort of competition, but also communication and cooperation. But competition is a big part of it. Big C competition, cooperation, communications. You know. And I do hope that both sides try to communicate in some ways. Now, when you talk of communication, we talk of groupings, and Kishore has mentioned that uh, we should work together. Everybody says that. We must all work together. We must form more groupings. But, you know, when Western countries, when U.S. and Europe talks of an open and inclusive Indo-Pacific. Is it inclusive of everyone but China? Or do you include China as well in your grouping? Now, I hope that the expression open and inclusive does open to the participation of China. Because I do agree that if you miss out the biggest country in East Asia, it's not going to be a very peaceful Asia or peaceful Asian century. Um, actually, I've spoken a lot. 
So perhaps I should just stop that. No, I still have a few comments about economics. So let me just do two sentences on economics. Um, the Asian 21st century will depend not just on the peace we can bring about to the Asian scene, but also what sort of economic development we can bring to Asia. We've always believed that you know, in Asia, because of the population, how hungry everybody is, how hardworking everybody is. And because a Chinese engine ticks, everybody will be pulled along. But we worry now about decoupling. Decoupling of the two economies, the two great economies, United States and China, and whether attempts to try to, you know, uh, regulate the interchange will in fact stall China's growth because the region depends on China's growth to a large extent. So to what extent does a technology uh, decoupling impact on China's growth? I think that's very clear. There's one point which has not been mentioned at all, Kishore, and that is population and what is going to happen to population in Asia. Today, China's population is 1.4 billion. By the year 2100, end of the century, China's population would be 732 million. It would have reduced substantially if China cannot increase its birth rate. That's a trajectory. Right now, it's the most populous country in the world. Second is India. Third is the United States. Fourth is Indonesia. In 2100, India will be the most popular country, but it will lose population too. From the present 1.2 billion, it will be 1.09 billion. Nigeria will be the second most populous country, 791 million. China, 732 million. U.S. has increased its population from 2017, my baseline. So the question is, when you have aging Asia and you have reduced populations and your biggest engine is going to lose half the population as it goes along, how much energy will there be? I think it still works because technology can help. But uh, I am a bit more sober about um, predicting with great optimism the uh, how successful and what a golden age Asia can be. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ambassador. <laughs> Let me turn now to Professor Kong Yun-Fong. Thank you, Dean. Uh, it is a real pleasure uh, to be part of this uh, panel discussing and celebrating Kishore's uh, latest book. Uh, and I think Ambassador Chan Ying-Chi has given us a terrific tour the horizon of Kishore's uh, previous books, and so I thought I'll start by sharing what I thought I liked most about the current book, leaving aside the substance uh, for the moment. I think it is its thematic and narrative coherence articulated in four installments. The end of the era of Western domination, the return of Asia, the rise of China, and finally the challenges posed by globalization and the need for multilateralism and global cooperation, themes that both Kishore and uh, Ambassador Chan uh, have, uh, you know, have spoken about. Now, as someone who has been subjected, I mean treated, to an avalanche of Kishore's writings since the early 1990s, I still found the organization of the selected essays around these themes rather enlightening. They told me where Kishore is coming from. Uh, in each of the pieces featured in the book. So for me, that made it a real treat, uh, as well as a terrific read. Let me now share a personal anecdote. Uh, as four of us on the podium know, I had spent most of my academic career in the West, studying and working in both the US and the UK. And so when, in one of our most faithful conversations, Kishore suggested why don't you come back and interpret Asia? It gave me pause and made me reflect. 
I thought, hey, I'm doing quite okay interpreting Asia from my perch in the West, right? In the event, I did come back uh, to Asia about seven years ago, and I must say, the significance and force of Kishore's insights hits me every day, day in, day out. Being here has changed my research agenda in ways that I had not expected. It's feeling the pulse of Asia. I mean, it's feeling the strategic pulse of Asia on a daily basis and having to grapple with it with an immediacy that is exciting, challenging, and oftentimes frustrating. Frustrating because I'm unable to get to the bottom of it. So let me give three examples of what I mean and link them to the themes that the book deals with. And then I'll end with some, ref I'll end my reflections on each of them with a simple question for Kishore or for us to discuss. First, the most recent manifestation of this hit you in the face phenomena. The buzzword that is on everybody's lips and that has become such a sacred desideratum. The notion of a rules-based international order. It's been all over the news last weekend, if you have been reading your papers or your social media. And for those of us who follow such things, it's been a raging concept that few dare to question in recent years. There is great consternation by some that as power shifts from the West to the East, a theme you find in Kishore's works, the rules-based international order might be in jeopardy or that it may not survive. The tone of the existing discourse seems to be that such an order will be under threat. In the book, Kishore argues persuasively in my view that um, he argues in favour of a rule-based order centred around the multilateral organisations such as the UN, the WTO and WHO. And he also makes the point, in not so many words, that if we follow the money, uh, it is the West, and perhaps the US in particular, that may be undermining these institutions by reducing or withdrawing their funding uh, for these global institutions. But I would argue that it is also the case that rising or a risen power like China will want to change some of the existing rules, which it had very little role in making, to adjust those rules to generate a regional order in which it can thrive even better or more successfully. Now, is that what the West is worried about? What might some of these rules, say, with Chinese characteristics, be like? So either way, would, you know, Kishore, you say that in the Asian 21st century, we can also have a rules-based international order, but perhaps not the one that we are accustomed to. Now, the second provocation that I wake up to on many days is the notion of ASEAN centrality. ASEAN insists on it. ASEAN's interlocutors from the US to China to Japan to Australia pay lip service to it, even as they cook up other institutional forms to deal with the strategic challenges of the region. While I agree with Kishore that ASEAN has done impressive work in building regional order within Southeast Asia and also in the first 20 years after the Cold War, extended its modalities, the so-called ASEAN way, helpfully to much of East Asia, I do wonder if ASEAN might be relegated to the sidelines when it comes to shaping the future of the Asian or Indo-Pacific order. It seems to me that um, the big boys are back with a vengeance and taking over. The challenge posed by a risen China has impelled the US from the Clinton administration onwards, but especially so since the Obama administration. My point being here that it did not start with Trump. Uh, it has uh, impelled the US to corral allies and strategic partners from Japan to Australia to India to balance China, which is a euphemism for preserving the US's predominant position in Asia. 
So the strengthening of the quad, the emergence of AUKUS, for example, uh, mean that these more exclusive security arrangements aimed at a specific country will compete with the more inclusive ASEAN institutions, such as the ASEAN Regional Forum or the East Asian Summit. The hope on ASEAN's part is that the ASEAN-based institutions can still play a role in defanging the sharp ends of the US-China contest. But if bipolar competition is going to be the order of the day between the two superpowers, I would expect that the Quad, AUKUS, Five Eyes, and the IPEF to play a larger role in shaping the security architecture uh, of the region than the ASEAN-based institutions. So the question is um, whether ASEAN might have done its best work on the Asia-Pacific front in the 1990s and in the 2000s, and that moving forward might have to revert to the more modest role of maintaining intra-ASEAN peace and stability. Finally, the third and most recent provocation uh, I have to grapple with uh, has to do with the implications of Russia's attempted invasion of Ukraine. I think Kishon's book became open access before the invasion, but since then he has also written on the issue. The thought I have relates to the notion of the West. One common rejoinder uh, has been that, who is this West that Kishon talks about um, you know, quite a bit in his work? Some argue that there's no such entity because the differences among those geographically situated there are more pronounced than their similarities when it comes to strategic and economic matters. Now, interestingly, many now argue that Russia's actions have galvanized and united the West, so much so that many of them, including Germany, France, are able to work in unison toward a common purpose in ways that seem uh, less possible before. So the larger question this raises is Russia's aggression against Ukraine by uniting the North Atlantic Eastern European states and by bringing about a revitalized, reunited and galvanized West, will that stall or even reverse the shift eastward in terms of the world center of uh, economic political gravity? In other words, uh, might it uh, you know, stall the coming of the 21st, the Asian 21st uh, century. Um, I think I'll stop there. Thank you very much. Uh, Yun uh, Thank you all. The way I'd like to do this now is to turn to Q&A. And as you can see, there are microphones, um, standing microphones in the, in the aisles. While I wait for people to come up there, there are already a couple of questions online, but I thought, if I may, I could say two things that attempt to add to what Kishore, Ambassador Chan, and Professor Kong have said. And those two things are this. First, the title of Kishore's book, The Asian 21st Century, is actually something that carries an ambiguity that might need to be brought out first to sort of better appreciate the, the intellectual feast here. Because on the one hand, the Asian 21st century might make it sound like the 21st century is there for Asia to own. It is Asia that will be central in the 21st century. The same way that before this, Joe Nye, Joseph Nye, one of Yun Fong's teachers, wrote a book called The American Century, where that century was for America to own. Joe Nye, of course, is also the one who crafted the notion of soft power that became inextricably linked with the American century. So the question for some of us might be, with Kishore's book, is this a shot across the bow? Is this a claim to the 21st century being Asian rather than, as Ambassador Chan has, has interpreted some of it, 
there will be an Asian 21st century, just like there's a Latin American 21st century, a European 21st century. If the 21st century is out there, and it is for each of our regional blocks to interpret and make of it what you will, a coexistence primer rather than an ownership primer. And the reason I think it is important for us to unpack this uh, ties to some of the things that, that Yun Fong and, and others on this panel have said. Because the rules-based international order, for many, came hand in hand with the American century. And if we are going to push an alternative to that, isn't this, after all, what the West has always worried about? That the rise of Asia the rise of China is actually an undermining of that rules-based order to be replaced by something that's made in the face of Asia's non-Western authoritarian image. That is actually a challenge. It's a challenge implicit, sometimes explicit, but it's a challenge that is actually embedded in Kishore's titling. Let me end with my second point, and then I hope we'll have this open question, which is that a friction point that both Kishore and Ambassador Chan explicitly pointed to, and that's implicit in Yun Fong's presentation, is Taiwan. Taiwan was named explicitly in Kishore's presentation and also in Ambassador Chan's presentation. Taiwan is what the Economist newspaper called the world's most dangerous geography in the 21st century for reasons of the collision of forces that have been identified here. But something that might not be so uppermost in our minds is that Taiwan is also a geoeconomic epicenter. What makes today's globalized economy run is semiconductors. Taiwan, the island, fabricates 80% of the world's most uh, frontier semiconductor production. Without Taiwan, we would have none of the things that we are used to. The semiconductors that run our computers, manufactured by MediaTek, the semiconductors and chips that run our smartphones, run by TSMC. No, I got it the other way around. TSMC does computers, MediaTek does our phones. And just to make everybody that much more cheerful at the end of this identification of geopolitics, security, and economics, <laughs> Taiwan is also the geography that in the last 365 days experienced 190 earthquakes. Earthquakes are profound disruptors of fabrication plants. So right now, we've got a collision of interesting, profound, consequential forces, intellectually, geographically, security, economics-wise, and it's all happening around us. So with that, I'd like to just have uh, added a little bit of factual economics to the conversation. I now want to turn to questions, if I may. The first question is from Gabriel Lim online. And in line with some of the things that we have said, Gabriel asks, do you think that Asia's pragmatic ideologies sometimes used to justify unethical authoritarian tendencies from our governments. Does this then make even more fragile this distinction that we're drawing between the American and Asian centuries? Can Asian societies learn to walk the fine line between useful pragmatism and dangerous authoritarianism? Uh, Kisho, I'd like you to pick up on that to begin. Uh, thank you. I think this is not the Gabriel Lim, oh. the permanent secretary of the ministry. <laughs> well, he identified himself, and I didn't want to say anything more. So, uh, well, I mean, you you can, of course, 
argue. I mean, the, the, the good thing about coming back to this Bukit Timah campus is that I spent four years here uh, from 1967 to 71 studying philosophy. And it's very easy to create these sort of black and white categories, okay? If you're pragmatic, you are unethical, you will bend with the wind, you'll do whatever is required. And if you're, you're a principal, you're non-pragmatic, and you will, of course, only stick to your principles. Now, that may be an idealized world that some people live in, but in the real world, all of us uh, have to find the right balance between being ethical and being uh, pragmatic. And, and uh, trust me, every society in the world has got to make uh, choices. So, for example, when you, when you, when you talk of uh, human rights, for example, uh, let me just state as a matter of fact, okay, that the European countries used to criticize every Asian country that carried out torture, right? And they say, as a matter of principle, we will condemn torture, no matter who carries it out. And then after 9-11, the U.S. set up Guantanamo. The U.S. became the first modern developed country to implement torture. I waited for the first European government to be principled and stand up and say, as a matter of principle, we criticize every country. Not one European government dared to criticize the United States of America, even though it explicitly carried out torture. I'm just telling you that that's the real world. Every country in the world, in its own way, has got to find a, find a balance between being pragmatic and ideal. And I would say on balance, you should judge what the societies do on the basis of their results, okay? And here, one of the key points I make in my book has China won, if especially we think the poor and the bottom 50% of societies. The bottom 50% in China has seen the greatest improvement in the standard of living over the past 40 years, more than they've seen in 4,000 years. And the bottom 50% in America have had their worst 30 years in 300 years. Now, that, look, at that, look at those real measures of economic and social well-being, and then you say, okay, what is working and what is not working? And by the way, we actually want the United States to do well. Actually, I would like the United States to be a bit more pragmatic and take care of its poor because a happy America is good for the world and unhappy America is not good for the world. Okay. Thank you, Kishore. Uh, can I bring Yun Fong into that conversation about pragmatism and authoritarianism? Since you know you spent your time both in the West and in the East, and as you say, you know you're coming back here has opened your eyes to all different things. What did you make of Gabriel's question that attempted to identify authoritarianism and the pragmatism in Asia? Oh, thanks for putting me on the spot. <laughs> um, <laughs> Okay, this one, uh, I would, my take on it is um, the follow-up on Kishaw's point about uh, pragmatism on the part of, say, uh, the U.S. or the lack thereof. There's this, uh, and I would like to relate that to my comments about the rules-based international order in which uh, liberal values uh, is a very big and intrinsic part of it. Okay. But uh, those, uh, those of us who have looked at uh, how the rest of the world respond to, this, to the importance of uh, liberal values as part of the uh, uh, rules-based international order have come to the conclusion that actually, if you look at the world, all right, uh, this may not go down well in many, many countries. In fact, Stephen Walt a uh, good friend of mine, uh, has argued that uh, the majority of the world will uh, be sceptical about uh, this ideological approach uh, to uh, uh, you know, rules-based uh, international order if liberalism is going to be so central. All right? One might need to be more pragmatic in the sense of uh, coexisting and dealing with uh, all kinds of regimes. So uh, the argument there is that one should not assume that uh, 
a rules-based uh, approach uh, premised on liberalism will win out the day. Actually, uh, it is a contest that uh, remains to be seen. Thank you. And from Ambassador Chan, can I invite you to speak on this as well? Um, Gabriel, thank you for the question. But I don't think you should assume that pragmatic ideologies should only be associated with authoritarianism. I thought democracy is pretty pragmatic because you talk of consensus, trade-offs, trying to work together. So pragmatic ideologies can be authoritarian or democratic. And by the way, democracy today has reached a point in some countries where it is degraded, meaning that it's become so ideological and politically correct that it's become stifling and almost intolerant. On the other hand, if you think about authoritarianism, I think when authoritarianism, authoritarianism gets to be, in fact, malignant and it tries to put down people and is repressive, it's quite terrible. And we should try never to have that kind of system. And I am much more comfortable in a democratic system. But if I look at the history of the four dragons or the four tigers in Asia and how they developed. Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore, all went through a period of authoritarian government. There was authoritarian government redistribution, you know, education of the people, and they all developed. And once they developed, the system started opening up. So, you know, at one time I did think as a political scientist, whether at certain stages of government, some tougher government, more centralized government might not be helpful in a situation. As political scientists, we say there's one problem which is worse than too much power in one hand is too little power in the government. And then you have no government. And that is also chaotic and difficult. So what I'm trying to say, Gabriel, is that it's not black or white. Thank you, Ambassador. Now, we're out of time, actually. But if I may, can I just, uh, if you'll indulge me, Lutfi, can you ask your question, please? Yeah. Thank you, Danny. And I'm Lutfi Siddiqui, now a visiting professor in practice at the London School of Economics. And it's great to be here 15 years since Kishore and I hosted a wonderful event here for Singapore and Bangladesh. My question is quick and short, which is, what does Asia want from the West? Thank you for that. Okay, Kishore. Um, I think the simplest thing that Asia can ask from the West is that as we move into the Asian century, you have to have a redistribution of power. So, for example, I'll give you just two simple examples. Uh, almost uh, now, uh, almost 80 years since IMF and World Bank were created, you've had the rule that the head of the IMF must be a European, the head of the World Bank must be an American. And even though they promised, the Western countries promised at the G20 meeting in London that future heads of IMF and World Bank be chosen on the basis of merit and not on the basis of nationality, that rule hasn't changed at all. So that's an example where, and frankly, the West would be better off if they allowed Indians, Chinese, Bangladeshis, Singaporeans to run these organizations and not just hoard them as privileges from the past. Similarly, I would say in places like the UN Security Council, you really got to have not the great powers of yesterday, but the great powers of tomorrow. So a UN, as Martin Wolf said also, a UN Security Council without India as a permanent member has no legitimacy. India is effectively either the second or third most powerful country in the world, depending on various indicators you use, okay? And with a country of 1.3 billion people uh, with so much weight has no voice in the international order, that's crazy. But as you know, as ambassador to the UN for over 10 years, it's very difficult to change these things. So it'd be better for the West to actually graciously accept these changes and then you'll have less friction in the 21st century. Thanks, Kishore. Heng Chi, what does, the, what does Asia want from the West? 
You know, uh, the West, the international order has been defined by the Western powers in the past. Many of us grew prosperous and did well in it. I think Asia still wants the same order, but adjusted, as Kishore says. But they want the markets, they want the technology, they want access to education, which is still, I would say, you know, you have to admit, Western countries are still offering the best education, and everyone wants to go there. You know, but I think more than anything, Asian countries, not just Asia, you know, countries in the non-Western world really want to have their say and they would like Western countries to listen to them. If I went, you know, at the Shangri-La uh, dialogue, that was exactly what happened. Prabowo, in fact, spoke very loudly about, you know, we have our own voice, you know, and we look at the world differently, you know. He sounded nationalistic, but this is Asia. Even the Fiji uh, defense minister, you know, spoke his voice and said, your enemy is not my enemy, you know. And Hishamudim also, you know, made the same uh, kind of statement, which is, we have a different point of view. We have agency. We are independent. We make decisions, you know, for our own interests. Listen to us. And I think we would like the West to listen to us and learn how to adjust what the power, you know, balance should be and not just impose your analysis on Asia. Thank you, Heng Chi. Quick response. Uh, I think I agree very much with what Kishore and uh, Hingchi has just said. Perhaps another way of putting it is uh, if indeed the 21st century is the Asian century, there is the expectation on Asia's part that commensurate with its uh, economic uh, uh, power, all right, it should uh, have a say in making uh, you know, uh, the rules of the uh, uh, new world order. So it's a it's an it's an attempt to uh, go for ask for co equality, all right, or a recognition of uh, you know uh, Asian uh, views um, in these forums. Thank you, Infong. Uh Listen, this is a conversation that obviously needs to go on. I don't want to think of bringing this event to a close as ending the conversation, but simply a pause on the next thing that we're going to do. But I am going to have to bring this event to a close. The time has gotten to where, where we're going to have to do that. But I want to thank uh, all of you in the audience for your attention, everybody online for your engagement and everyone's enthusiasm. I want to thank uh, the panelists for a wonderful discussion, uh, you know, expression of their views. And obviously, we all want to thank Kishore Mabubani for giving us the wonderful opportunity to hold this event. Thank you.